Some of these issues can feel very remote to South Africa. Let's admit that right off the bat. The rest of the world is wringing its hands about robots taking jobs, while here we don't have enough electricity to keep robots alive, and also there aren't any jobs for them to take. So let's localize the debate and see what meaning we can find in it closer to home. And here to help us do just that in discussing artificial intelligence, threats and solutions to the climate crisis are Professor Lettelhoka Mpedi, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg, the aquaponics horticulturalist, I knew I would F that one up, the aquaponics horticulturist, Kuguletu Maklangu, leading them in conversation is the wonderful Daily Maverick journalist, Zukiswa Pikori. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for joining our discussion on artificial intelligence and how we can use it to mitigate the climate crisis and what any potential pitfalls are. Now, for some of us, AI is a very futuristic, faraway concept. However, it's already and has been very much a part of our life. Take, for example, Siri or Alexa, which most of us, I'm sure, have. Then there's self-driving cars, there's text and image generators. They all use AI. It also curates our social media feeds and is used in, to help companies detect things like fraud and whether or not to hire employees. It's used to manage livestock, enhance crop yields, and can also be used to assist with medicinal diagnosis. So I'm definitely not the expert here. I'm here to ask the questions um, and hopefully enlighten all of us. Um, so I'm joined by my two esteemed panelists. Um, to my left is Guguletu Matlangu, an aquaponics horticulturist who grows nutritious, chemical-free food. And at the end, we have Prof. Litlokwambedi, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg and has been championing UJ's efforts to reduce its carbon footprint. So how I'm going to structure this discussion today is I'm going to start by giving my guests just uh, five minutes each to give us some introductory remarks on their side. Um, we'll then have a discussion amongst us and then I'll also intersperse uh, audience questions. So please do get your questions ready, send through on the chat and we will integrate them into our discussion. So let's start with you, Guguletu. Tell us about aquaponics. All right, so um, hello, everyone. Um, so my name is Guguletu Masangu, and I am a farmer, essentially. I have um, started with aquaponics as a, actually a beautiful mistake. I feel like I have to tell the story. I was a Spanish farmer leasing in Johannesburg, and I was busy with um, my spinach, rotating it with my bush beans, and I was really getting into the habit of farming and starting my own business, uh, even amidst COVID. But, you know, um, as you guys know, during COVID, that's when a lot of people realize the importance of food. So I was scouted by China Television Global Network, and they covered my story, and they said aquaponics farmer in South Africa. And the reason why they said that is because I think they saw that I had a water reservoir and they saw that I had like tunnel structures. So, um, yeah, 
if you go on YouTube right now and Google aquaponics farm in South Africa, you will see me, but I am doing ground farming. So it's completely incorrect. <laughs> and so that's how I was scouted, actually, um, by a commercial aquaponics farm in Johannesburg. And that's where I got my experience. And now I'm currently back at home. My hometown is in Woodbank, Emalatheni, the hub of our load shedding struggles. <laughs> And that is where I am starting my own aquaponics farm. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm really excited for the conversations today. <laughs> Prof. Bedi? Uh, yeah, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, when I got in, an invitation to come and, and, and be part of this panel, if I saw that there would be so many people, uh, I doubted if I would have accepted the invitation. <laughs> But, well, I'm here, and it's so great to see you. It tells us that there are so many people who are interested in this important topic of climate change. I know nothing about algorithms. I'm a lawyer by training, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm very much interested in this topic under discussion as an individual and also as a leader of the University of Johannesburg, because at the University of Johannesburg, we take this topic very seriously, as you'll hear later. I'm personally interested in the legal challenges associated with AI, the ethical challenges and the gaps that need to be filled. So I decided that I'll use these uh, four minutes that are left to say a word or two in an attempt to answer the question that is, has been asked, which is, will AI serve as a positive tool or have a detrimental, if, uh, detrimental effect on, on our future? To me, ladies and gentlemen, AI, even in the case of climate change, you know, climate crisis that we're dealing with, it's like fire. Fire, if you use it correctly, you can benefit from it, you know. You can cook and so on. But if you use it the wrong way, then it can burn you. So it's about striking a balance. Um, one can talk about the promise of AI or the peril of AI. And let me start with the uh, promise, what I see as the, pro the promise of a AI, particularly in the climate change space, is that if one uses AI correctly, you know, one can use this to um, you know, improve energy e efficiencies. You know we are having serious challenges today with this issue of load shedding and, and so on. I mean, if one deployed AI correctly, one could predict, you know, where and when some of these, um, you know, breakages will happen of our infrastructure to generate energy. Another important point, especially in the farming space, you know, is that one can use AI to, to um, you know, uh, have real-time insights in terms of their crop health and so on, and farm in an intelligent manner mm -hmm. and have a good yield. You know, today we talk about food insecurity and definitely as population, you know, populations grow and as we consume more and more, we're going to face serious challenges. Another important point is that one can use AI in developing strategies for climate adaptation, resilience, and identifying vulnerable regions and proposing mitigation measures. We recently had floods that had a devastating effect. If AI is used appropriately, one can predict where such challenges, you know, such as floods, may occur. But obviously, even if you have these technologies, if you don't have um, leaders, you know, people in charge who don't respond, you know, it, it doesn't help. So AI alone cannot um, help. We need also people who respond accordingly. Another important point that one can, can make is that AI can help analyze behavior 
behavior patterns to encourage sustainable choices and raise awareness about climate change. We need to raise awareness, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, there are challenges, as I've indicated, and I just want to mention a few. I mean, AI in itself, you know, it um, uses a lot of energy. So we talk about reducing carbon footprint, but, you know, to run these algorithms and so on, you need energy, something that must be managed. And, and also you need uh, reliable data. And talking about data, we know in this part of the world, particularly in the global south, we've got challenges related to gaps, you know, and inconsistencies in data that must be addressed. Another important point that one can mention is the issue of AI bias that we'll need to deal with when we deal with these issues. I talked earlier about ethical considerations that must be kept in, in mind. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, where do I stand on this, I would say what we need is to strike a balance to ensure that we benefit from, you know, uh, the positive of AI and ensure that we move forward, you know, by ensuring that all the stakeholders are informed about the benefits of AI. As I indicated, I come from, uh, and I have a law background, what is troubling these days is that uh, technological developments you know, go at a faster pace and legal policy regulation is slow. And with all due respect, many of those that are supposed to pass these laws, I doubt it if they understand these challenges. Somebody joked and said some of the lawmakers can't tell a different, the difference between power and energy. And, and we need to address those things. So let me pause there, ladies and gentlemen. It's so good to be here. <laughs> Thanks for those broad brushstrokes, uh, Prof. There's so many little nuggets that I want to pull out um, out of what you just outlined for us. But I just want to bring it back to um, a practical level. Um, I want to understand from somebody who knows very little about aquaponics, um, how does aqua, um, artificial intelligence uh, work for you in, in, in aquaponics? How do you use it in aquaponics to your advantage? Okay, so aquaponics is this beautiful innovation, uh, aqua coming from uh, water. So aquaponics combines aquaculture uh, and the innovation of um, farming, vegetables or um, cannabis or your fruits. So how it works is that you have different techniques, but essentially the principle is that your fish, um, your fresh water fish, is able to give you fish waste, and by that fish waste, it undergoes a nitrification process where it gives you from the fish waste being ammonia to uh, nitrates, which the plants can then use up and take up and um, purify that water for you and recirculate it back to the fish. So it's a, it's a system that works hand in hand, it's symbiotic, and it saves a lot in terms of costs. Um, we all know that farming is, is it's a heavy business, it's capital intensive, so the more you can save, the better, especially on fertilizers. So when it comes to AI and how I have seen it at play with aquaponics is that AI is able to um, interpret data 
And, you know, with my job and um, with my job at that time being analyzing data, AI worked for us in the sense that we employed um, sensors on our fish, sensors on our vegetables. So we were able to monitor the fish health. We were able to manage parameters of the fish you know, in terms of their oxygen levels, in terms of the pH and all the technicalities to ensure that the fish are happy. And we also put a switch that was connected to a cloud that was able to send us messages to monitor the water levels to show us, okay, while the water levels are rising or the water levels are decreasing. And these messages would come at any time of the day, at night, and that means now you need to wake up and go check what's happening with your fish because when your fish die, your business is dead. So the fish is the money and we need to take care of our fish. So essentially that's what aquaponics is and it's a scalable model that can be replicated anywhere. Right now it's very attractive in urbanized areas, but when you look at South Africa as a whole, I think it can definitely contribute even to our rural communities and also um, our homes. You know, we can design aquaponics and um, using relatively cheap uh, materials, and we are able to produce food for ourselves. I mean, most of us have apartments. We can plug the system and scale it down to fit into our balconies. So AI definitely plays a role in terms of sensors, in terms of, um, you know, optical sensors that were able to take pictures of the fish and just monitor the what we are interested in, you know, which would be DO, which is the oxygen, what would, which would be the salinity, the pH, the temperature, especially with the fish that we were busy with. Um, I specialize in tilapia, uh, Nile tilapia. So, yeah, AI, I believe, plays a role in terms of efficiency. I mean, I can't even imagine um, not having sensors, in a system like aquaponics, you know, you, you really need to monitor your fish. And when you think about it, these fish are in, you know, huge tanks. You can't physically manage each one. Even though we did employ uh, tagging them, which we put like a chip so that we were able to kind of um, monitor the breeding process. But you can't do that with, any, with each and every fish. It's going to be very expensive. So AI really plays a role in terms of efficiency. It plays a role in terms of real-time real data, analyzing things as they happen. And in agriculture, where time is money, you kind of need AI because it saves you a lot of time. It saves you a lot of money. You are able to make decisions before the worst possible scenario can even take place. Okay. Um, Prof... Is the use of AI to mitigate climate crisis uh, at risk of people abdicating their responsibility to um, better their carbon footprint because we now have this intervention that is artificial intelligence? Is it, is it at all sort of susceptible to that kind of abuse where people take, the people who are actually generating all these, you know, to take a step back and be like, well, we have this, that's going to mitigate in any case anyway, so it's fine, I can continue to live the way that I've been living or doing business the way that I've been doing business? 
Yeah, thanks, thanks for the question. Yes, there is that risk, you know, for people sitting by the side and say, let others do it. And we have a duty to educate, you know, everyone to say everyone has a role to play. And in a country like ours, people tend to uh, use words such as, it's not possible, who do you think you are? And I'll use the University of Johannesburg as an example where we, we, we made a conscious decision that we want to show others that it can be done with the hope that others will join us, you know, in making uh, a difference, even in a small way. And I'll give an example. At the University of Johannesburg, 15% of our energy comes from solar. We've got um, um, you know, solar plants at four of our campuses. If you ask me, is 15% enough? It's not. I mean, as the vice chancellor of the university, when I hear that diesel engine running, I know that per day we spend 100,000, ladies and gentlemen, on diesel, which is a lot. It's not sustainable. So the pressure is on us to invest, you know, as quick as we can. Of course, we have limited resources to increase, you know, um, our solar energy generation and other ways, you know, to ensure that we are sustainable. Now, to give another example where people are saying, who the, who the hell do you think you are or what do you think you are doing and say, look, it's possible. Early this year, we launched um, a project where we've got, at the moment, two electric vehicle buses. Normally, we run 15 internal combustion engine buses. And with these two buses we bought, assembled in Gauteng in Johannesburg, we displaced two diesel buses, and these are used to ferry our students, very reliable, comfortable, Per year, we save 400,000, ladies and gentlemen, on diesel and uh, costs to, to service them. Thank you. So, both cost us 7 million. It's a lot of money, but in five years' time, you know, we, we were confident we shall have recouped uh, the money we spent or thereabout. But that is not the only thing, also the impact on the environment. So people were laughing at us, saying, you are crazy at the University of Johannesburg. ESCOM doesn't provide power. These buses will be stuck. This is the third month. I can promise you, you won't find them stuck anywhere. And we're saying it's doable. You can do this. We, you know, using AI, we can plan accordingly when they can be charged you know, at night, when there is low you know, usage of energy and so on. And the exciting bit is that some government departments have asked us to avail these buses so that they can display them and ferry passengers, and this is what we want to do. So if more people join us and we show that it's doable, we hope that more people will participate in these initiatives, mm. and then we can make a difference. Great. So I want to talk on the, the issue of ethics that often comes up when it comes to um, artificial intelligence and how, it you, how it's used and how it evolves. Um, so one of the things that, you know, we, we kind of consider is the potential of the data that you receive um, and its implications in being automated. Um, how do you ensure that there's, like, fairness, transparency, um, in order to avoid exacerbating existing issues already? What would you say to that, Prof? Yes. Give it to you first. Um, the, the issue of, of data is an important one. I mean, earlier when I talked about the issue of bias, which is a big problem in, 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 in many areas where AI is used. I mean, e-recruitment, we know that Amazon in 2018 suspended its e-recruitment system because the data that was used, you know, um, it looked at men, 
over a 10-year period and he discriminated against women. There are those who say if you use e-recruitment processes, you know, AI-driven e-recruitment processes, there's a risk that people of color may be excluded and women and so on. So we need to be aware of such challenges. Now, it raises one question. Most of the data is collected by big corporations, you know, elsewhere. It may not be representative of our region and so on. So this calls us to play a role in protecting our data and ensuring that we collect our own data that we use that would reflect our challenges and be relevant to our situation. But now, if you look at this, let us be honest, ladies and gentlemen, um, you know, you need huge data sets, you know, it can be expensive to collect this. Obviously, there are companies like Microsoft that has got like AI for, for, for Earth, where you can get information. But there are very few uh, governments, you know, countries that can process this, this data that is required for this. And to the point that it's big companies that have got the computing power to process this. In terms of governments, perhaps China can process this, but many governments or countries like us, we don't, so we rely on others. So as a continent, we need to come together and ensure that we have the necessary computing power to ensure that we are at the forefront of developing these AI technologies that are relevant for us, because if we wait for others to do it for us, people will come and collect our data, take it elsewhere, and use it to advance their own interests and not our interests. So we need to be alive to such challenges and invest in these um, technologies. And most importantly, make sure that people understand what this is, you know. And, and I'll refer to my university again, and I'm not trying to advertise, but it's the truth, it's what we are doing. We took a conscious decision to introduce an uh, open online course called AI in the 4IR, Artificial Intelligence in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. As long as you have metric, you can sign up from wherever you are. You do it at your own pace. It will take you maximum 50 hours. It's not about programming. It's about one understanding what this is all about, from how AI is used or misused in, in the judicial, uh, you know, in the justice system, in dealing with climate change and so on, because the most important thing we need is to ensure that people understand what they are dealing with so that more people can you know, uh, engage with these issues with great confidence. So you are invited, those who are curious, to sign up. It's free of charge, and then you get a digital certificate. I'll also open it up this morning or this afternoon to our parliamentarians, because we can't have lawmakers who don't understand, <laughs> you know, what we are dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I'm understanding that, you know, it's all a collaborative effort because you can have the research, you can have the data, yeah. but if it's not being used effectively by That's the right. people who actually have power to affect the change, then it's as good as useless. Yeah, Thanks for that, Prof. Google um, can you, in, in, you know, um, in, in your experience and what you've, what you've seen and noticed, how would you say or what kind of uh, mitigating impact has... Uh, the kind of farming that you do had on a climate crisis? So, you know, um, coming from a commercial experience, I mean, the farm that I was working for uh, had German investors and we had were privileged enough to have an RO plant, an oxygen generator, solar panels, solar geysers, um, all these uh, multi-parameter sensors, you know, um, I, 
I have seen that, you know, in, in terms of high tech, using technology and AI, you can really be efficient. Um, but I have been challenged, you know, now that I've started my own aquaponics farm to be like, Guguletu, you are telling us about this aquaponics concept. It sounds a bit Eurocentric. You need to kind of scale it to a South African context. You know, how can we adapt to this technology? You know, is it something that we can use? Uh, are you aware that there's load shedding? So you're telling us that now, you know, we need to um, fund you with uh, solar. We need to fund you with... Um, um, generators, how feasible is it? So, you know, I've had to kind of like scale down and um, kind of adapt and change this model to, to fit the nexus of Woodbank, you know, because with the Woodbank, um, I don't know if you guys know, but we are plagued with air pollution, you know, we have over 24 calories and I was born and bred there and most of the time people there will have... Um, you know, a lot of health issues and we just have a lot of problems and those are the negative effects of the coal mining. So I'm always tasked with this question, like how is your aquaponics going to mitigate any climate crisis? And, you know, my case study being my hometown, I'm always speaking on um, adaptability and I'm also always speaking about the reality of climate change and the effects that the mines have had on climate change. They've had um, a huge negative effect on our land. Our lands are, you know, degraded. Um, our lands are contaminated. The water is contaminated. So I'm always saying that this is a model that we can plug in to, first of all, um, help in terms of creating jobs but also help in terms of um, accessing food where we are currently and relying on ourselves as a community and ensuring that, you know, um, we kind of change aquaponics in a way that does not need the oxygen generators, need the, um, you know, sensors and stuff like that. So we, we, we are slowly changing it to kind of fit into um, a model that can be replicated but by any ordinary South African. Um, but I just, I always just find it so funny, I guess, when people are hesitant to adopt um, climate smart initiatives like, ag like aquaponics. Um, because I remember a friend of mine, it's so crazy, but a friend of mine decided to, uh, we were out and she was like, oh my goodness, you know, the clouds look very different. Google it, you know, is it going to rain? Because I'm a farmer, I'm supposed to know if it's going to rain. And I was like, why don't you pull out your smartphone? You know, <laughs> you'll get your answer. So it's, it's, it's such a practical solution. And I think we, we forget that AI is, you know, benefiting our own lives. You know, without your smartphone, I don't know if you guys would survive. Um, but also in the context of the climate and the context of um, agriculture, AI can have positive uh, influence, you know, in terms of um, accessing food, you know, without farmers, without food production, with the increase of the population, we are going to starve, you know, so we need to kind of adopt models that are going to help us where we are, you know, government is, is really slow to, to, to pick up on um, the changes that we need immediately, 
Um, so we need to be self-sustainable as a people, and we need to be looking at um, building innovative ideas where we are currently. You know, let's not look anywhere else. And I think with aquaponics, it's a system that you can build. Like I mentioned before, you can build it. Um, you know, there's deep water culture, there's nutrient film techniques. There's so many techniques that you can build yourself. And, you know, YouTube is your oyster at this point. Anybody um, who's sitting here can access and build their own aquaponic model. So I think it definitely can, yeah, you know, mitigate the climate crisis if we um, adopt these technologies in our personal space. And it can help us immensely in the self-sustainability. And then when you look at it from a global aspect or from like a Whitbank aspect, not only are we self-sustainable, but we are also saving the planet. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that answer because um, I was going to ask, you know, how accessible, you know, this kind of uh, technology is and how accessible it would be for the ordinary person to just suddenly find themselves as an aquaponics farmer. But what I appreciate about what you said is that you went from a point of working at a commercial level and you kind of understood um, the technology that comes with that and built a skill set, yes. but then were able to then adapt it to your home, which is Vitbank, which makes yeah. more sense. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's, it's very important. I mean, um, if you're going to start, unless, of course, your you know, pockets run deep, but if you're going to start an aquaponics system, you know, um, it really needs the skill set and it needs a lot of money. So... If I'm going to be, you know, on stage here advocating for aquaponics, I better know how I can, you know, sell it to anyone who wants to adopt it, you know, whether they have the money or not. So it's, it's very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's new, but I, I feel that um, in 10 years' time we'll be having a different conversation. I think we may have some potential aquaponics ones. I hope so. I'm looking after this. <laughs> uh, I just want to bring in some of the audience questions, and this one is for you specifically, Gugletu. This is from Chris Newman. He says, with regards to the aquaponics, how exactly does the AI information get relayed to you? Um, so we have this aquaponics, well, we had this aquaponics app that uh, was connected to our sensors that was showing us the, well, at that time, you know, we were focused on um, getting processes in place on the farm, but it was focused on our main parameters, which is your pH, your oxygen, salinity, temperature, um, especially from, from the fish side. And then from your plants, it's also the same thing. You know, you need to really understand um, your, your plants each and every day and how they are changing if they are. Um, because we were using deep water culture. I'm an advocate for deep water culture when you're going to use aquaponics uh, just because it maintains the temperatures. So um, AI in that sense, you know, always gave us um, data that was translated to graphs that I, at, at that time, um, my job was to uh, interpret that and say that, okay, guys, um, it's summer and our crops are growing at this rate, and these are the parameters that it takes for our crops to grow. Um, we can scale it to more plants because it's hot. That means we, our growth rates are much faster, so we can add in more lettuce, for instance, um, in, into our rotation. So AI was giving us real-time data, and it was also interpreting our data, um, so it was easy for us to keep track of what is happening currently with both the fish and the vegetables. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, I'll pose this question to you, Prof. Mm. Um, it's a statement and a question. Climate crisis solutions, this is from Leonie Jubert, by the way. Climate crisis solutions are not held back by a lack of information, but by A, a lack of political will, with concerns about how AI will drive further disinformation and political polarization already, ignites by social, already ignited, I assume, by social media platforms. How do we tame the AI to, ne to not tear society apart? It's a little dramatic ending there, but how do we not get torn apart? <laughs> Uh, thanks for the question. I agree. I mean, the biggest challenge we're having is lack of political will, you know. Once people start that it's not doable, oh, it's expensive and all those things, then nothing happens. Um, in terms of how <laughs> we prevent this uh, from tearing us apart, I mean, the, the, the issue is um, we need to give people right information. There are people who say... Um, because of AI, robots are going to kill us and so on, and... And, and you, you need people who would explain these things in a way that people will understand. Mm. And, I mean, we are fortunate we can, we, can, sorry, we can come together like this, but there are people out there who you know, have nothing to eat, who sit there and say, what is this robot of yours going to do for me? We need to show people the value of what this can do in, 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 in a way that improves people's lives. That's why I talk about moving from the technical to the practical, ensuring that whatever we do using these AI technologies has got positive societal impact. And if we do that, I believe you know, we can show a lot of people the value of these AI technologies, including those that are yeah, in, in various offices, you know, that they can use the limited resources to advance um, you know, the interests of our communities. And I'm not, this is not just talk. I can give you another example, once again, from, 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 from the University of Johannesburg, where the Faculty of Engineering in the Built Environment at UJ, in partnership with Schneider Electric, and this is where, you know, we show the importance of partnering with the private players, private sector. The university and Schneider Electric adopted a village, you know, a forgotten village in Limpopo called Gwakwani where only one man worked, ladies and gentlemen. No cell phone connectivity, no nothing. The community was sharing water with animals from the river. And colleagues went there, using solar panels, they set up a bakery. Now there are people who are employed working at that bakery. Other neighboring villages come and buy bread, not just bread, you know, hot cost buns, buns and so on. And then using solar, they sunk boreholes, and then using solar, they pump water. Now the community, uh, you know, at Gwakwani have got food gardens. And through colleagues at UJ, we are going back now to help them set up, you know, um, you know, aquaponics and hydroponics and all that, so that they can feed themselves. They've got street lights that are power, solar powered. They've got a preschool now. Kids couldn't speak English now. Using a television donated, they saw the ocean for the first time in their lives. So this is things that we need to show people who say this type of technology can divide us, to show that it can uplift communities. I'm mentioning this because that is arguably the first smart village in Africa, right here in South Africa, because professors at UJ... Thank you so much. Professors at UJ can manage the systems from Johannesburg while the community sits in Gwakwani in Limpopo, more than 400 kilometers. They can troubleshoot things from UJ 
they can see you know, where challenges will arise and then go there and fix this. Two weeks ago, colleagues went there to install inter the internet so that the community can be connected. I'm mentioning these examples. Yes, there will be challenges. AI can divide us. But if you show the world that there's a positive side, that if we come together, we partner and have these public-private partnerships, then we can you know, transform lives. The plan is to launch this smart village and to invite politicians to come. The aim that we have, and, and the private sector players, is to have more players to come and partner with universities, not just with UJ, and adopt more villages like this and transform lives. One man worked in the whole village. Now we've got people working at the baker and so on. And if you don't believe me, Google it. You'll see it on YouTube. We've got nice videos about this. And please join us and transform lives, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Prof. I appreciate your non-apocalyptic outlook on this. <laughs> um, I have a question for Guguletu again. Um, and Bevan Thomas asked, would you trust AI to look after your operations? For example, leave a farm unsupervised by a human. Absolutely, I, I would. I mean, uh, with AI, um, I went to this woman's seminar where we were all like kind of coming together to, to share ideas. And, you know, one lady asked if, you know, she could be a farmer and still be a, a mother, you know. And I, I, I thought about that, and I was like, absolutely. I mean, when you look at um, smart farming and having notifications come through to your phone to, to let you know what's happening on your farm, you know, be it with your security system, you know, with your video sensors and facial recognitions that you, you have set up on farms. Most farms are set up in such a way that, um, you know, the, the entire farm is, is geared by technology and AI, from the security, from, you know, opening up the, the locks, from people entering the farms to come work. So AI is, is it's, it's something that really helps us be at ease. You know, a lot of times people think that AI is coming to take jobs or AI is coming to dominate. But I, I think we should just change the outlook to be like, you are now at ease. You know, if you are a female and, you know, you, you want to travel, you, you know, like, oh, I want to travel, and, you know, you want to kind of still have a farm and, you know, have a, a unique balance, work-life balance, you are looking at aquaponics, you are looking at AI, you know, to monitor everything from your screen. I mean, people own restaurants and, and they're watching their screen like this, you know, in another country to, to see what's going on in their restaurants. I mean, that, that is, that's AI. You know, as a woman, if you're looking at, you know, wanting to be at home, you know, be a mom, AI is definitely going to facilitate that. So I would definitely trust it um, because it's real-time data that you are seeing, that you can trust, that has been proven to, to work and be successful. So, yes, I would. Okay. I mean, I assume that with, with everything, you, you can trust it to a point, right, that as long as you also make sure that you're really taking, making sure it's still functioning as it should be functioning so that it doesn't actually give, end up giving you the incorrect data, which may 
endanger your Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're at a farm, you're relying on connectivity, you're relying on, um, you know, data that's um, been proven to work. And, you know, the more you accumulate data, the more accurate it gets. So based on your historical data, you are able to be like, this is making sense. You know, what I'm seeing now from my house, you know, is, is, is making sense. I'm not being duped. I'm not being sold uh, a lie. So, you know, AI in terms of accuracy is, is quite accurate. So um, <laughs> I want to touch on uh, everybody's favorite um, point to kind of belabor, and I want you guys considered opinion on this. Um, so Yonda Makubudela asked, as much as AI can be reliable and make things easier, don't you think AI contributes to high unemployment rate, as we saw during lockdown when people were retrenched? Um, it's, it's, it's a fact, you know, I can speak with great authority. As somebody who did his PhD in the area of unemployment insurance, people are going to lose jobs. That's a fact. But do we sit and say, let's fight this? No, we have to move with the times. We have to upskill, reskill people, and so on. We launched um, a project where we use a 3D concrete printing um, you know, machine to print a low-cost house in eight hours. And we launched it early this year in partnership with the Department of Science and Innovation. The aim was just to show people that these things can happen. And the Department of Human Settlements in uh, KwaZulu-Natal will be using these machines to print uh, low-cost houses. And people are saying, Daga boys are going to lose jobs. Bricklayers are going to lose jobs. I say, yeah, you're going to lose jobs. And you'll be unemployed if you don't get reskilled. So we need to say, yes, you're going to lose jobs, but we're going to give you new skills. These machines will need to be serviced. These machines, you know, um, as I said, print a house in eight hours. It means in seven days there will be seven houses. So we'll need more plumbers, we'll need more electricians, we'll need more people to paint, we'll need more people to put in tiles. So we must look at the bigger picture. Those who lose jobs and will remain unemployed will be those who refuse to be reskilled or to be upskilled. So these are things that we need to, to look at. Yeah. And, and ladies and gentlemen, through projects like this, we, we want to show, yes, the downside of AI technologies and so on, but also show the positive side. And, and, and we need to capitalize on the positive side. There are lots of gains, you know. I don't know, those who um, have engaged constructors to build, especially from villages. I don't know, you saw the wastage, you know, that you see, you know, they just, I don't know. Um, I tried to, to do a project for my mom and the wastage there, and now I'm thinking if I bring this machine to print, you know, it's precise. No wastage, it's quick, and so on. So to answer the question, Yes, jobs will be lost, but it's an opportunity to upskill, reskill people to keep up with this mission. So there will be more opportunities than the opportunities lost. Gugled, you actually touched on this in, as you were talking about bringing aquaponics to your community, where you actually said it actually creates jobs. Yeah, I think it does create jobs. Um, I 120% agree with what Prof was saying, um, because you know, um, when I was still working for the commercial farm, uh, we were in the hub of Hartebius, you know, where it's, it's close to Brits area. And if you guys know, Brits is like an agricultural hub. Um, so, you know, 
uh, we were surrounded by communities that are used to being seasonal workers, that are used to be like, I'm going to have a job, um, especially the females, because I've noticed in farms, you know, the females are good with the harvesting. You know, so the females are, are usually the ones that are going to be harvesting because I guess you know, they're so delicate and careful. Um, but when it comes to, to, to that idea of even employment, you know, in the agricultural spaces, people are used to being seasonal. You know, they, they are not used to agriculture being um, uh, a job that can pay you a wage in every yeah, single right. month that yeah. you have a contract. So we were working and we were a farm that, amidst all of this, was employing uh, people uh, on yearly contracts. You know, so it does create jobs because now the people that came to work on an aquaponics farm now know how to handle the census, now know how to uh, capture data and, you know, um, also read and write. Like, um, we are living in a country that has a high literacy rate. You know, so just to write down numbers, people were starting to get upskilled with that as well. So it's a whole, I believe, um, change of outlook. You know, um, I, I mentioned the cell phones because I'm, I'm pretty sure people can understand it more when I'm speaking about a cell phone. You cannot live without your cell phone. Um, it's, it's just none different to agriculture where you guys actually cannot live without food. So the more we um, implement these changes that say that, you know what, guys, this is different. Yes, absolutely. But you are benefiting, I'm benefiting. And, you know, in 10 years' time, you are going to be the person they want for an aquaculture farm. Or hopefully, I'm praying that, you know, um, there's alternative protein sources in 10 years and, you know, tilapia is going to sell. Because it's hard to sell tilapia uh, in this aquaponics space. So, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that in 10 years' time, you know, the, the people that were working um, in the aquaculture spaces will be the next farmers to have their own aquaculture spaces, whether they are educated or not. But based on experience uh, that is facilitated by AI, their lives will be transformed. Thank you. So I guess just in closing, if I could get your final thoughts, both of you, um, on what makes your heart beat so fast uh, and want to work in this climate crisis alleviation space, particularly with the use of AI. Let's start with you, Prof. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about my grandkids that I don't have, you know, and I'm saying if I don't do anything <laughs> now, you know... Despite my limited space of influence, then you know, I shall have failed them. They won't forgive me. So I'll do my best in my small area of influence with the hope that others will join in their own way and together we'll make a difference. Thank you. Well done. 30 seconds. <laughs> Thank you. Good later. Close us off. What, oh, the pressure. Um, what makes my heart beat fast is knowing that I'm in an industry that I love. I mean, you know, I sometimes feel so alone. You know, I, I really feel like I'm on my own tangents. Uh, but I, I'm definitely satisfied. I'm happy. I'm excited. You know, here comes this new way of farming that is giving all sorts of prospects. And I'm just so excited to pioneer the research and development of it. Um, because like I said, in 10 years' time, we will be having a different conversation. So super excited. Okay, thank you. Thank you. 
And on that note, thank you for joining us on our hopefully scintillating discussion on AI and the climate crisis. Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you. Thank you.